Bible, would you like to grab it? Or a digital device? As long as you don't do your emails, you can look at your Bible on it. Acts chapter 17 is where. <clears throat> and I've, I've entitled this a hugely imaginative title. I mean, it's taken me a long time to come up with it. It is Paul in Athens. <laughs> it's deeply complicated, very taxing on my creative skills. I want to talk to you this morning about my hero, our hero, Paul. And specifically, his breathtaking confidence in God and in God's gospel, the good news of Jesus. It is extraordinary. Well, this is one of my favorite bits of the Bible, if you're allowed to have favorite bits of the Bible. Uh, in Acts chapter 17, Luke records it in what we call Acts chapter 17. The Apostle Paul uh, was in the middle of his second church planting tour bit like a rock band, he went on tour around the Mediterranean several times uh, in order to, not to play music, but to plant churches. And he found himself in Athens, uh, which for the previous 500 years or more had been the, 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 really the most prominent, foremost city-state in Greece. And when it came to art, when it came to sculpture, when it came to architecture, when it came to literature, when it came to philosophy, when it came to education, when it came to politics, on and on and on, it was the place. It had an unrivaled reputation as the sort of center of the empire. And famously, you may know this, it has three hills, and on, sitting on top of one of them is a thing called the Areopagus, or well, sometimes you may have heard it described as Mars Hill, same thing. And if you can imagine a combination of a, a university and a county court and a city council. So imagine here, if the, or do you have three universities here or two? Imagine the, 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 the ruling bodies of the center, what are they called, of both the universities were together and you merged them with the city council and you merged them with the high court and the county court in the city and then maybe the House of Lords and the House of Commons you know, moved up here temporarily. You merged that whole group. That was, that was the group that met on the Areopagus. These were the people who were guardians of the city's religion, morals, and education. And it, so it was filled with the brightest and the best, or the, the most glittering collection of intellectuals and academics and brilliant people in every sphere. So as I said, Paul found himself in Athens, and he was awaiting the arrival of his two friends, Silas and Timothy, but as he waited, he had time to kill. So he did what any of us would do if we had time to kill in that famous city. He grabbed his iPhone, all the equivalent, and went sightseeing. He did Athens. Let's pick up the story on, in Acts chapter 17, verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them, that's Silas and Timothy, in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. 
So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler? It's a rude word, but this is a polite translation. What is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. Yes, they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And he thought they were two gods, Jesus and the resurrection. They were married to one another. So they got the wrong end of the stick entirely. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus. This was this group I'm talking about, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking and listening to the latest ideas. So how did Paul react? Having found himself killing time in Athens, well, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, tells us what he saw, what he felt, what he did, and what he said. What he saw, well, verse 16, do you notice, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. No other city like it has, has had so many, it was, it was swamped by these idols, submerged in a veritable forest of idols in the city. The popular saying in Athens was at the time was, if you went out into the street, it was easier to meet a god than to meet a man or woman. So the place was infested with them. <laughs> there were endless shrines, altars, temples, to, you know, to Apollos and Venus and Bacchus and Neptune, and the whole lot were there. What he saw, what he felt, verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them. Um, so, so here's Paul sort of killing time in Athens, you can imagine that he might be intimidated by this Areopagus and this, this extraordinary intellectual firepower of this group. He could have said to himself, well, these people are absolutely brilliant, who am I? Or he could have been depressed. He could have said, oh, this is absolutely hopeless. We've, just, we've sunk under a deluge of all these idols and Christianity doesn't have a, a chance. But he, he doesn't say that. It says that while Paul's way through Athens, he was greatly distressed, or as one paraphrase of the New Testament, his whole soul was revolted at the sight of a city given over to idolatry. And it, um, Luke tells us three times that as he was wandering around, he was cogitating and ruminating and processing all that he was seeing. And as he did so, the fires of indignation started to burn within him. It says he was re revolted or he was greatly distressed. That word in the original is the word we get our English word paroxysm from. He, 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 got, he was stirred up, he was outraged by what he saw. In uh, 1890, General William Booth, who started, founded the Salvation Army, wrote, famously wrote his book. It was called In Darkest England and the Way Out. And Booth wrote, if you've ever read, read bits of it, Booth in the book 
writes with deep feeling about the miseries caused by poverty and unemployment and homelessness and hunger, exploitation, drunkenness, disease, slavery, prostitution, and so on and so on. And he comments, I love this phrase, the blood boils with impotent rage at the sight of these enormities. And that's what provoked, as a result of that study that he made, <coughs> excuse me, that he and his wife Catherine Booth started the Salvation Army with, the, you know, with all that came in the aftermath of that. So Paul was outraged. He was jealous for God as he saw women and men giving themselves to idols and honoring and glorifying idols rather than the one true living God. But that wasn't the end of it. Luke tells us what he did. He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews. He reasoned them, and we catch a glimpse of three different groups in the synagogue, in the marketplace, on the Areopagus. He just started to discuss, and because he, he didn't throw his hands up and despair, say, this is hopeless, we've no hope, we might as well pack up and move on somewhere else. No, no, no. He had something to say, and we have something to say in the world and the culture in which we live. And so Luke tells us what he said. We pick up the story again. Will you go, if you go back to chapter 17, verse 22. So he's speaking now in the Areopagus. And he, he recounts, as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, he says to these people in the Areopagus, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. A bit like in, you know, in Westminster Abbey, there's the tomb of the unknown warrior from the First World War. Well, this was, a, a, this was an unknown God that they'd set up an idol, a, 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 an altar to. Now, what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you, says Paul. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all women and men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men and women that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men and women would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him though he is not far from each one of us. He's not nearly as far as you might think he says to these Athenian geniuses. Verse 27, for in him we live and move and have our being. And as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he's appointed. He has given proof of this to all men and women by raising him, Jesus, 
from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. Others said, we want to hear you again on the subject. After that, Paul left the council. <clears throat> now, the, the, this paragraph I've read to you is probably a concentrated, condensed praise of what Paul actually said because it takes less than two minutes to read it uh, in the original language. And he obviously he would have, well, most likely he would have spoken for much longer. But he begins, men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. He's not being rude, nor is he trying to flatter them. <clears throat> He's simply making a statement. He's saying, you lot seem to be searching for God. Looks to me like that, just wandering around as a tourist. And then rather cleverly and deftly, he uses something he's seen on his sightseeing trip, and he uses that as a launching pad. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your object's words, I even found an altar with an inscription, to an unknown God. And what actually had happened is that 600 years before, there had been a terrible plague had hit the city. Thousands of people had died. And no amount of sacrificing to all these gods did the trick and stopped the plague. So in the end, they, quite literally, they let loose into the city a large flock of sheep. And every time a sheep sat down, they killed it there and then. And created, and the spot where, they had, uh, 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 where the sheep had stopped, they created an altar because... And they turned that spot into a shrine because they thought, with all the gods we have here, we may have missed one, and he's the one who's causing the plague. So if we slaughter all these sheep, chances are we'll, you know, we'll hit the jackpot. Yeah, but it's perfectly true. And so, but they didn't know the name of the god, so they just called it an unknown god. And the, the, the phrase, in the original language, the unknown god, agnosto theo, that has pretty much slipped unnoticed into the English language with the word agnostic. That's where the word comes from. So, so remember who Paul is talking to? Yes? The council. So he stands up and he says to them, now... What, next verse, what you worship as something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. I mean, it, it is breathtaking in its boldness. He launches, in, he launches into this speech or this sermon, and he says three, three spectacular things stunning things, majestic things about our God. First of all, he talks about God's great creation. Notice in verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and he does not live in temples built by hands. Remember, he's speaking to a city that is populated by all these temples and altars. In other words, what Paul is saying, in effect, he's saying, the God I'm talking about to you 
that you appear to know nothing about. The God I am talking about has made the world for us to live in. But we somehow think that we need to make temples for him to live in. He said, no, 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 you've got it wrong. You, you, you Athenians are operating on the assumption that poor old God needs board and lodging. You know, an Airbnb. <laughs> that he can't get along without you. <laughs> you see, it's brave. Paul turns it around and says, no, 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 no. It's God. It's not God who needs a dwelling place made by you. It's you who live in a dwelling place made by God, already made by God, the world. He's relentless. He doesn't let them off the hook. He presses on. And he, this God, is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men and women life and breath and everything else. I mean, what more? You, he, he's given you the lot. You, he's basically saying our human instinct is to want to give God worship and offerings in order to keep him going and keep him happy and keep him you know, from raining terrors upon us. <laughs> Whereas the truth is that it's exactly the other way around. He gives us everything. And apart from God, you and I wouldn't even have got up this morning. We couldn't have done. Hold your breath for a moment. Okay, just hold your breath. Block your nose, shut your mouth. How's it going? Still going? You're not breathing, are you? The only reason, you can, you can, you can take a breath now, before we send for the ambulance. The only reason, Paul says, the Bible says, the only reason that having held your breath, pinched your nose and shut your mouth, the only reason you could take your next breath was because of God. We're that dependent upon him. Couldn't be more upside down, could it? And this is the God we worship. And he presses it further, verse 29. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we shouldn't think that divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's skill. Basically what he's saying, with all you brilliant people in this council, you, know, you lawyers, you philosophers, you academics, you movers and shakers in the city council, you judges with your wigs, you, all you lot, you members of parliament, you peers from the House of Lords, baroness this and so and so. The best you can come up with, all this glittering brilliance has been harvest you've tried to make God. All the stuff you've done, all the architecture, all the creativity, all the art, all the philosophy, on and on and on, tells us nothing whatever about God. You've completely failed. You've made God in your own image. 
he, he ridicules them, really. Now, in our modern world, we, we may not have the forest of idols that they had back then in Athens, but there's idolatry everywhere. Of course there is. If you define an idol as the most important thing in your life, the central thing in your life, the governing principle of your life. So if you want to know what you are, I mean, the simplest way to find out, it's very, very easy. If I started to take things away from you, take away your health, take away your clothing, take away your car, take away your house, take away this and take away that, take away your family, take away your money. As I steadily work through everything about you that I can take away, what is the last thing you'd want to hang on to? The last thing you would surrender? There you go. <laughs> Otherwise known as Foot Baal, worshipping the god of Baal in the Old Testament. Repu maybe your reputation. More than anything else that's important to me is my reputation. Or my marriage, or my family. Now, not that any of these things are unimportant, you understand. I'm just saying what is, what is, that's the idol. And that's where Paul goes. You see, his one great point is this, and it is stunning. God is our creator and sustainer, and we depend entirely, entirely upon him. We cannot do without him. That's what Paul is saying Christianity is all about. That's what he's got to say. So in other words, the, the great sin, the great offense, the great mistake, according to the teaching of Jesus and according to the New Testament, is not adultery or lying or cruelty or any of these awful things. No, it's this, that I want to be independent of God. Flicking your fingers at God. See, I don't need you. I don't want you. I can do without you. At this point, as Tom Wright says in his commentary, at this point in Paul's speech, he turns a corner. Verse 30. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. So the second thing, God's great creation, God's great mercy, God overlooked. Do you like that? I love that word. Chapter 17, verse 30. God overlooked. He just decided he will overlook it. He's not going to make a fuss about it. He's not going to raise it again. He's not going to hold it against you. He's going to overlook it. Wonderful word. God's great mercy. And then the third thing, God's great creation, God's great mercy. And the third thing that Paul goes on about is God's great authority. Look at verses 30 to 31. In the past, God overlooked, but now he commands you, and he's talking to the council, every one of you, he commands you to repent. In other words, to acknowledge that you've got it wrong so far and that your hunt for God has been entirely fruitful, fruitless. 
You've gone off in the wrong direction, and it's now repenting, as you know, simply means you're going in one direction, you turn around, you go the other direction. That's all it means. God looks into the past. This note of God's, uh, this is what always catches my breath. This is the authority with which Paul speaks about God's authority. First, he says, God looks into the past. God looks into the past, and because his authority, because of his authority, because he alone is able to do so, he selects a, a course of action that is open to him. In other words, he shows mercy. He doesn't have to. He's not bound to, but he chooses to, and he sent his son, Jesus. He looks into the present, and he commands. Isn't that breathtaking? God commands. Following Jesus, deciding to follow Jesus, we often talk about as an invitation. Come to Jesus. And that's, it is an invitation. It absolutely is an invitation. But it is also, we mustn't lose sight of the fact it is a command. by the one who alone has the right to make that demand. And he looks into the future. He has set a day when he will judge the world with justice. There is a day coming, he says, when all the, a day of accounting, if you like, when all the things that were wrong will be put right. And you think, you think, I mean, just... Just off the top of your head, the number of injustices that maybe you've experienced personally, or you see, or you see in the world around, you see in the political world, you see across the majority world, just one injustice after another, and we've, some of them have been drawn to our attention, injustice of the way women have been treated in our culture has been prominent just this last week, hasn't it? All these injustices, one day God is going to put right. And that's right, that's fair. He will judge the world with justice. Anne of Austria, he was tormented by Cardinal Richelieu. You must have seen Three Musketeers or Four Musketeers or Five Musketeers, you know, the various sequels did hit inflation, didn't they? And you had more and more Musketeers because you couldn't make money out of the film. But besides that, he was the bad guy, uh, Cardinal Richelieu. Anne of Austria, whom he tormented, once said to him, God does not pay at the end of every day, my Lord Cardinal, but at the end he pays. Elsewhere in the Bible, it says this beautiful rhetorical question, shall not the God of all the earth do right? We worship a just and holy God. It's amazing. And no doubt the members of the council looked at Paul and said, well, either you're a bigot or you're a fantasist. Where does all this come from? How do you know? Paul says, I've got the proof for you. Verse 31. Second half of verse 30. He has given proof of this, what I've been talking about. He's given proof of this to all women and men. How? By raising Jesus from the dead. God gives to everybody, he says everyone, an assurance, a proof 
a certainty, grounds, firm foundation upon which to base all this. Raising Jesus from the dead. Remember in um, Paul writing to the Corinthians, in, in his letter to the Corinthians, he said, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. It's an absolute waste of time. If the resurrection didn't happen, it's all a waste of time. It's all fantasy. But because Jesus has been raised, everything hinges on this man. N.T. Wright, let me just read you a little bit. He's a, sorry, N.T. Wright is, um, he's quite old now, but he's, um, he, he writes superbly on the Bible and makes, writes notes and commentaries on the Bible. He's very, very helpful. The creator God will do this through a particular man. He's appointed for the task. In other words, Jesus himself. How do we know Jesus is coming as judge? Because, Paul says, God has raised him from the dead. If it is the resurrection of Jesus that explains why Jesus is, coming, is the coming judge. It isn't anything so trivial as that the re resurrection demonstrates Jesus' divinity or even his human superiority and that this qualifies him for a somewhat tricky task of judging the world. Rather, he said, it is with the resurrection of Jesus that God's new world has begun. In other words, Jesus being raised from the dead is the start, is the foundation, is the beginning of the great setting right that God is going to do for the whole cosmos at the end. And the risen, listen to this, the risen body of Jesus is the one bit of the physical universe that has already been set right. Jesus is therefore the one through whom everything else will be set right. So the new world has broken in just in one place and in one instance and in one person, the new body of Jesus. And that's the beginning of all that's going to be. And because love is, God's love is so magnificent and so broad and deep and just staggering, he has the right to tell you and me, if we're heading in the wrong direction, to change our mind to follow him and it's not a bossy brutal tyrannical authority we're talking about the authority of God but the, that of a loving father who would go to the lengths of sacrificing his offspring his son his only son to make it happen so you say, well, what's, I, I'm, don't worry, I'm coming into land. I can see the landing lights and we're heading, I, I can, I've waved to the people in the control tower, they know I'm coming. <laughs> all right? And we're, so wh where do we go with all this? Well, this breathtaking beauty of the truth. This is the truth that God has laid out. And we, most of us spend so much time in, uh, doing, in living in our culture and doing what we do, we're surrounded by people who haven't a clue about this. And sometimes are rather antagonistic. We sometimes lose sight 
So if I can do nothing more than sort of refocus your, your binoculars a bit, maybe that'll help you. Because it leads to God's great creation. It leads to huge gratitude. Even the next breath you take is because God loves you and he made you. I was at a petrol station in Exeter last Wednesday, I think it was. And I just filled the farm land over up with petrol and, you know, it cost me about 3,000 pounds. <laughs> and I was recovering from that. And out limped, out of the thing, limped a man wearing a suit, and he was obviously, you know, a businessman, limping. So I said to him, well, I said, you look as if you're in a bit of trouble. He said, I am. I said, would you mind if I prayed for you? We said, no, I'd love that. I was expecting him to, you know, swing his right fist at me. But he said, no, no, I'd love you to. I don't know who was more surprised. So I said to him, um, you know, God made you. You know, God made your body. He made that ankle of yours that's giving you jip. Let's ask he who made it to mend it. And I prayed for him and he tootled off. God is that great and we're so grateful. So it's gratitude that springs. God's great creation, Paul was talking about, the, the response we're invited into is gratitude. Same with God's great mercy. He decided to overlook all my terrible past. And you only need to talk with her to discover just how extensive that is. He's overlooked it. He's forgiven it. And his great his massive, humongous authority. Now, by the way, there may be some of you sitting in here, one or two of you, who said, um, do you know, I've never, I'm on this journey that Debbie was talking about earlier, and I've never, I, I mean, I, I, I get all this, and it makes sense, but I've never actually made the switch. I've never really turned the corner. Well, you can do that today, now, why not? Just, it's the authority of Jesus which is both an invitation and a command to switch tracks, to, to repent and to thank him for his creation and to thank him for his mercy and to surrender to his authority and say, okay, God, I'll go your way from now on. In fact, if that's you, let's drop your chin to your chest now. Let's pray. God, I've never done this before. But I recognize your great love for me. I recognize you give me everything. I recognize you've overlooked all my stuff in the past and you've forgiven me when you sent Jesus. And I tell you now, I want to change, change my mind, change my direction. I want to surrender to your authority. Bow before it. Say, Jesus, will you come and invade my life, please? Come redirect it in a way that's going to be utterly fulfilling. Amen.